a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hi there, and welcome to the show, my fellow wrong thinker. I'm so glad you could join me today. Listen, I have some exciting news. We are welcoming uh, the first of what will hopefully be many new sponsors to The Brian Hyde Show today. I want to uh, welcome firesteel.com. You'll be hearing more about them coming up here in just a little bit. And also, I want to welcome the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. And uh, again, appreciate them being sponsors. I ask of you, my, uh, my listener... If you hear something that uh, that either applies to you or maybe you know somebody who needs what these sponsors have to offer, please do me the favor of uh, hitting them up, do business with them, tell them as you make that purchase, I'm here because I heard Brian talking about you, and I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you for letting them know that their advertising dollar is, in fact, reaching you. Well, let's dive right in. There has been a very interesting controversy unfolding uh, on my Facebook page, and, and I have to give credit where credit's due. Uh, Mike Meharry with the Tenth Amendment Center and the Libertarian Institute posted a piece uh, yesterday morning. That would have been Sunday April, or August 2nd. He posted a piece, Should Libertarians Work with Commies and Fascists? Now, this kind of goes to something that we touched on last week, and that is Ammon Bundy reaching out to Black Lives Matter and actually extending support to Black Lives Matter in Idaho to defund the police. And I have had my phone has blown up here of late with messages and calls from friends. Hey, what's going on? Did Ammon lose his mind? What is happening? And it, it has brought out some some really interesting dynamics in terms of how people view these uh, groups that are their ideological opposites. Now, I'm not one for the ideological purity tests, but I believe that uh, when we impose that ideological purity test on everyone around us, what we end up doing is creating kind of an echo chamber, which keeps us from making any kind of meaningful uh, coalitions or in that case, any meaningful progress in limiting our true enemy, which is the state. And Mike Meharry has, I think, a great place to start here, and then we'll dive a little bit deeper into why it's probably a good idea not to just talk to people who agree with you or who pass your ideological purity test. Now, when I share this with you, I understand this is going to rub some people the wrong way. This is going to, it's going to push hard against some of our, our cherished beliefs that, hey, I'm right, and they're wrong, and they're my enemy, and they want to destroy me. But listen to what Mike Meharry says and tell me if this makes sense. Mike says, over the past several weeks, we've seen some libertarians participating in Black Lives Matter protests against police violence. This has led to criticism. Should libertarians be linking arms with Marxists, even if they have a common cause? He says, this raises a broader strategy question. Should libertarians work with people ideologically opposed to their broader principles if the partnership can lead to an incremental shift toward liberty. For instance, should libertarians work with Black Lives Matter to fight against the growing police state or right-wingers to fight gun laws? Now, Mike Meharry says to me, this is a no-brainer. Of course we should. In fact, single-issue coalitions have been the bread and butter of the Tenth Amendment Center's work for years. 
For instance, he says we've maintained a strong relationship with the ACLU and work with them on surveillance issues. The fact that the organization is awful on the Second Amendment and the vast majority of ACLU staffers and supporters sits solidly on the political left doesn't stop us from working with them to rein in the surveillance state. In fact, he says we have joined coalitions with organizations far to the left of the ACLU to successfully ban government facial recognition surveillance. On the other hand, he says we work closely with right-wing organizations to fight federal gun control. The fact that a lot of these people happily embrace the police state and foreign wars doesn't stop us from working with them to protect the right to keep and bear arms. He says it's pragmatically stupid to, t- to tell somebody on the left, I'm not going to work with you on surveillance because I disagree with your wealth redistribution scheme. And he says in the same way, it would be stupid to say, I'm not going to work with neocons on the Second Amendment because they suck on war. Now, his point is, is going to be a hard one for some of us to consider, but it has to be considered. And that is sorry, but we're irrelevant. He says as libertarians, we'd be wise to remember that we are an overwhelming minority. Very few people embrace our philosophy, and most people aren't interested in the broader principles of liberty. If we apply an ideological litmus test before working with people on political activism, we will never do any effective political activism because virtually everybody will fail our test. Practically speaking, he says it takes large groups of people to create the momentum necessary to change policy. Newsflash, libertarians aren't a large group of people. In fact, he says today we're politically politically irrelevant in today's sharply divided left-right paradigm. Yes, that sounds harsh, but it's the cold reality we have to live with. If we want to change policy, it's imperative to form coalitions with other people from the left and the right in order to cash in on the synergy of the group. We might be a minority when it comes to liberty, but we can join with others to create an interest group strong enough to block police surveillance and and enforcement of gun control, block a tax hike, or even repeal an unjust law. These actions might not mean absolute liberty in our time, but they will allow us to live a little more free. And that's the ultimate goal, isn't it? To quote Murray Rothbard, libertarians must come to realize that parroting ultimate principles is not enough for coping with the real world. End quote. So why not work with BLM sympathizers to push back the police state? In the current political environment, there's suddenly a lot of interest in curtailing police militarization, especially on the left. And he says this is something we've been pushing for years at the Tenth Amendment Center. The right was kind of interested in this when Obama was in office, but as soon as Trump was elected, they became full-throated supporters of weaponized cops. So if the left wants to fight police militarization, he says, I am more than happy for their help. If we can get bills passed that limit surveillance or opt local cops out of federal militarization programs, that's a net win for liberty. But aren't we empowering the left and making it more likely that they will take over? Well, Mike Meharry says, I doubt, that very, I doubt that very seriously. But if they do, they won't have those police state tools at their disposal. When we successfully limit the power of the state, we limit the power of whichever politi- or political persuasion happens to control the levers of the state. He says, look, very few of us were born into libertarianism. Most of it came from the left or the right. Even though we've embraced libertarian principles, we tend to hold some sympathies with one side of the political spectrum and distrust the other. Now, Mike Meharry says, I came from the right. Even though I recognize both the political left and right sucks, it's easier for me to forgive the foibles of my former cohorts on the right and demonize those on the left. To borrow a phrase from the movie Pretty Woman, it's the fork I know. 
Lack of trust makes it difficult to work with people we ideologically disagree with. As one friend put it, you shouldn't be working with those lefties. Commies aren't trustworthy. Of course, he says, I've heard people sympathetic to the left say similar things about fascist right-wingers. But he says, when you boil it all down, does it really matter whether they're trustworthy or not? If they help me achieve a policy goal, their motives don't really matter to me. The point is to get something practical done for liberty. Now listen to this next part, because this is important. He says, I'm not suggesting compromising principles. I'm suggesting it's wise to work with people when they have the exact same policy goal and when implementing that policy will further the cause of liberty. The operative question isn't, what is everybody's broad philosophical worldview? The operative question is, will doing A make me more free, and will working with these people to achieve that goal make us more likely to achieve it? He says, if I can answer yes to those questions, I'm moving forward. And you know what? When you actually talk to people in a cooperative way, sometimes it opens doors to change their minds. Boy, that's the key right there. Mike Meharry says, here's the harsh reality. If I'm only willing to work with people who share my ideological worldview, I will sit here by myself and watch YouTube all day. The truth is, sitting around virtue signaling your hatred of the left or the right in your little echo chamber isn't going to make you more free. Getting policies changed in a way that limits the power of the state will make you more free. And he says, I'm happy to work with anybody that will help me do that, even in a limited way. Because my enemy isn't the left and my enemy isn't the right, my enemy is the state. Dang. Mike, I tip my hat to you. That is such that is such a breath of fresh air. And I think he's right. Now, I shared this on Facebook yesterday. And when we come back after the break, I'm going to share with you some of the, the responses that I got. Because there are, there are a lot of folks who really push back hard against this. Well, now, how can you do this? How can you, how can you do this without compromising your principles? And I understand. I'm one of those people who believes, you know, you do not compromise your principles. But I don't think this amounts to you're, you're giving up your principles, you know, for the sake of some short-term political gain. I think there may actually be something a little bit larger at work here in that you can maintain your principles, even if you are working with people with whom you aren't in ideological lockstep. But there's another benefit that possibly comes from that. And that benefit is you may, without even trying, bring people over to your side because they recognize truth when they hear it from you or they see it in the way that you conduct yourself. See, that's a way we haven't looked at just yet. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I want to remind you that you can check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I have links to Mike Meharry's excellent article, Should Libertarians Work With Commies and Right-Wingers? It's a pretty provocative little uh, commentary, but I'm telling you, Mike is on topic here. And, and it made me think about something that I've seen play out here in the last couple of weeks, and that is Ammon Bundy extending his, um, his support to Black Lives Matter. Now, that doesn't mean that Ammon has become a Marxist, but, boy, I have talked to a lot of good friends who have become ideological purists. And, well, if you're even one molecule in their favor, you have just lost the whole thing. And I fear that they have lost 
sight of, of what is really at stake here. There's a couple of ways that they've lost sight. And, and I hope I don't make you uncomfortable when I share this with you. But um, I, I really believe one of the toughest things that, uh, that we have to do is to, to be able to view the people around us as something more than just political enemies. Now, it took me a while before I could get to this. Before When I, when I grew out of my red meat throwing phase, I learned that, you know, even my most dedicated human adversary is still a child of God. Now, they may be misled, as I may sometimes be misled, but it doesn't matter because to them, or to God rather, they still matter, and they should matter to us as well. And I think one of the toughest things that Jesus ever asked of his followers is, love your enemies. That is the deepest, most difficult test of a person's willingness to follow Christ's example. And I'm not going to pretend for a moment that, oh yeah, but it's, you know, it's easy for me. It's not, it's hard. But you got to stop viewing people as, you know, an enemy to be vanquished. And trust me, the people who actually agree with you, and I mean really agree with you on, on any given issue, is a lot smaller than you probably think. Even among your allies, even among the people who give you attaboys, yeah, I'm with you on this. I promise you, there were still areas of disagreement. But I saw lots of comments when I shared uh, Mike Meharry's uh, commentary on Facebook saying things like, well, you know, I just don't think that you can reason with them. Uh, here's one. This person says, I agree that most BLM followers are not educated in principles of liberty and justice. Many have good intentions and believe they're doing something good, but most of them with whom I've interacted are not open to reason, so I think my efforts are better placed elsewhere. Now, if your mind is made up like that, I mean, can you not see that uh, maybe you're not open to reason either? Because nobody's asking you to abandon your own principles. It's a little bit difficult, but if you look for that common ground, I promise you, you can find it. But you have to stop looking at them as the enemy to be vanquished and look at them as a prize to be won. But how could that really happen? In fact, let me share another comment with you. This, was, uh, this is from another friend of mine who, uh, again, a great lover of liberty. But he says, you know, he, he portrays it as sleeping with the enemy. Interesting read, but it sounds like sleeping with the enemy. Certainly the woke thing to do, but make no mistakes. Side with them today and tomorrow you get canceled too. That's how cancel culture works. And he goes on to say, it's never right to do wrong to do right. We reap what we sow. We don't flirt with the enemy or we are, or we are one with the enemy. How in the world can an American striving for freedom find an affinity of purpose with an organization that is the antithesis of freedom? Sorry, but this is just opportunism joined with hate. Anyone buying into this will likewise be canceled by woke society. Now, that's a pretty hard stance to take. But I'm going to remind you that, you know what? It, it's not a matter of, well, they're, they're all just one big you know, conglomerate who thinks exactly the same. That group, as you put it, is made up of individuals. And even within that group, as you see it, that big, you know, uh, you know, amalgamation of, of menace, there are many individuals with many differing points of view. Never was this pointed out more clearly to me than when I participated in a Better Angels workshop a little over a year and a half ago. There were a lot of folks there. there were, well, there was half of us from the political right. There was half from the political left. Everybody was pretty firm in their beliefs. But even on those sides... Nobody really was marching in lockstep. There was nuance, and there, there were differing points of view. 
And it's because you're dealing with individuals, and sometimes we forget that. And if you want to see a great example of how, you know, you can stop seeing people as an enemy that you need to crush and start seeing them as a prize to be won, it starts with seeing them as individuals. And I think Daryl Davis, the, the black musician who convinced 200 Ku Klux Klan members to give up their robes, probably the best example of this. I'm going to have a link to a story that, uh, that talks about him. He's a blues musician. For the past 30 years, this guy, Daryl Davis, has spent time befriending members of the Ku Klux Klan. Now, would you say, well, he's wasting his time. Those people aren't open to reason. I would think most Klan members would, would fit the description of being pretty unreasonable in the sense that to embrace that, to wear the hood, and to, to participate in their you know activity, to become a, a member of their organization, you'd have to be willing to take a pretty hard stand. But Daryl Davis has nonetheless reached out to them on an individual basis. And as he starts talking with these members, as he sits down and has dinner with them and just asks them, why do you hate me? You, you don't even know me. One by one, these guys' hearts start to change. And as remarkable as it sounds, 200 of them, maybe more at this point, this article is a couple of years old now, 200 of these Klan members stopped being Klan members, not just stopped, but handed over their robes to Daryl Davis. I mean, the symbolism there is this is like a cowboy handing over his hat. This is like a, a biker handing over his colors. <laughs> He's, I'm not going to do this anymore. Look, I, I'm not suggesting that, it, that it's easy. I think what Daryl Davis has done takes a great deal of courage. But more importantly, it takes a degree of love for your fellow man that transcends your need to be right ideologically or politically. And so I'm going to ask you to consider this. And I know it's asking a lot and it, it probably makes you uncomfortable. There's there's a point in time where this would have made me extremely uncomfortable as well. I'm a little more at ease with it now because I recognize that. Look, some of the people who signed who uh, chimed in rather when I posted uh, Mike Meharry's uh, comments or commentary on my uh, Facebook page are not people from from the political right or not people who you would say are libertarian in their thinking. But I love that their voice is a part of the discussion. I love that they are taking part and they feel comfortable to take part in it. And in part, it's because I have made sure that they know they are first and foremost a, a valued friend rather than just simply, well, you know, this is my token uh, left wing buddy here. I don't frame it in, in ideological terms. There were, yeah, there were things we don't agree on, but that's OK. I'm comfortable with the idea that people can disagree with me and it's not that big of a deal. In fact, if I could be so bold as to suggest this. The people who get most uptight and angry when they encounter a differing point of view, the ones who are really dogmatic about it, are the people who are, to some degree, insecure in what they believe. They're not sure. And I say that from the standpoint of because that's, that's how I was when, when I wasn't really sure where I stood or if I, if I felt like maybe I'm on thin ice and I don't know for sure if, if, I'm, if I'm right or if I understand things correctly. I would get defensive. I'd get mad and I'd insist you have to agree. You have to you have to think the same as me. 
Now, it doesn't mean that I have all the answers, and it doesn't mean that I believe, oh, yeah, I know exactly what, what the case is. I have committed to the truth in a lot of things, and I'm good with that, and I'm totally okay if somebody else doesn't see it my way. You don't have to agree, because I really don't have anything to prove to you. And, and I guess the, Paul Rosenberg describes it as this, when you have arrived at the truth, or at least when you have, have done your due diligence and you're comfortable with saying, I believe this is the truth and I'm willing to embrace it, You've won the toughest battle. You don't have to prove anything to anybody else. You don't have to win that discussion. So the option then is just, you know, be a light of truth. Do what you can to help other people see it. Let them come to it on their own terms. But above all, speak the truth with love. And don't worry about changing their minds. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. And once again, thank you for being a part of my audience. I really appreciate the fact that you are listening, whether you're catching us on uh, the Loving Liberty Radio Network or any of the uh, wonderful radio stations that are carrying this program or the other networks that carry this show. Little by little, like a, like a little brush fire with a, with a gust of wind, uh, the, the message is spreading. And I thank each of you who opens your mind and opens your, uh, your mouth to let other people know where to find it. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can do so any number of places. I, I'm happy to report we are being picked up by all of the, uh, the best podcast platforms. If you go to thebrianhydeshow.com, you can subscribe there. And, of course, I have show notes with all of the links to everything that I talk about and even a few stories that I don't get to in the course of of the show that you can check out and use to, uh, you know, to, to better understand the world around you as well as what you can do to uh, to make the kind of difference you were born to make. I want to take a moment here and just thank firesteel.com for being one of our sponsors. I know that uh, preparedness is a big thing for a lot of folks, for me included. And one of the things that you have to have as part of your preps is the ability to create a fire under any conditions. Now, look, Yeah, I believe in stockpiling matches, stockpile lighters and so forth. But you know what? Lighters run out of fuel. Matches can get wet. Matches can be bulky and even somewhat dangerous to store. Check out firesteel.com for the very best fire spark, uh, flint and steel fire starters. I mean, they are the bomb. And go to firesteel.com to find out more. We'll actually have a special coupon code for our listeners. You can enter Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, and save 10% on your purchase. And best of all, it'll fit in your pocket. It's something you can have. It'll take the place of tens of thousands of matches and will keep you better prepared for whatever may come. Firesteel.com. All right, back to the show. Let's, I have some not so good news. I want to share this with you just because I want you to be aware while we're all, you know, jousting over things like masks and compliance and, you know, are you going to wear that mask in the store? And, you know, the COVID-19 enforcement people are standing there in their vests frowning at you if you try to enter the store without a mask. I get it. That's a big deal. And for a lot of people, this is, this is the battleground that, uh, that they see things happening on right now. In the meantime, just out of sight... We have uh, one of the uh, biggest economic catastrophes. In fact, a catastrophe bigger than the Great Depression of the 1930s is taking place. David Stockman has facts and figures showing what our lockdown lunacy is accomplishing. This was published on the Ron Paul Institute, actually ronpaulinstitute.org. 
And I'm not going to go into great detail because the charts here really tell the story. But uh, just a couple quick excerpts here. David Stockman's article is titled Lockdown Lunacy, Your Government-Ordered Depression Has Arrived. He says, well, the virus patrol sure has done it. In a fit of reckless overkill, they have managed to vaporize six years of economic growth during the last 90 days. And that's just by the mechanical reckoning of the of the GDP accounts, where total output in the second quarter weighed in at essentially the same level as quarter four of 2014. The real damage, he says, is far deeper, however, and reflected in millions of small businesses permanently destroyed, tens of millions of households wiped out financially, and the vicious daisy chain of delinquencies, deferrals, and defaults just beginning to rip through the $78 trillion edifice of debt, which entombs the U.S. economy. I know, he's... <laughs> no, no positive spin on this whatsoever. He says, of course, most of the Wall Street talking heads were nonplussed by this morning's release because, well, Q2 results are claimed to be ancient history. Reality is purportedly the V-shaped recovery on their spreadsheets, which really can't fail to happen because it's always two quarters out, regardless of conditions at the moment. So here's the hard truth that David Stockman has to share. He says, let's get something straight. What is happening is an economic catastrophe, the likes of which we have never before seen, even during the Great Depression of the 1930s. In fact, he says the worst annual decline back then was a 14.8% drop in 1932. Well, the entire peak to trough real GDP decline between 1929 and the 1933 bottom was roughly 30.5%. So he says it would be fair to say that measured at an annualized rate, the idiotic Dr. Fauci and his virus patrol have now delivered a 32.9% GDP plunge, which single-handedly tops the entire contraction of the Great Depression. Needless to say, the second quarter result also leaves the recessionary drops since 1950 way back in the dust. Even the auto industry-induced plunge of, of the first quarter of 1958 didn't make the double-digit threshold. It clocked in at 9.986% annualized decline, or less than a third of today's cliff dive. Now, he says what was especially noticeable, though, was the, or notable was the vaporization of personal consumption spending on services, which ordinarily accounts for upwards of 70% of total PCE, which is also ballyhooed by the paint-by-the-numbers Wall Street economist as ballast that keeps the GDP moving ever higher, but not this time. So bottom line is there is some very serious economic uh, trouble afoot. And I don't tell you this to, to cause you to give up hope, but just keep it in mind. It's, it's happening out of mind and out of sight. It involves numbers. It involves acronyms that may not be on the tongue of every person. Um, you know, some of these you may not even be familiar with. I mean, how many of you sit around and discuss GDP over the dinner table? Probably not very many. But we have a problem on our hands. And I recommend this article from David Stockman. Again, it's, it's quite lengthy. He has the charts to show. If nothing else, it'll help you get your mind around the depth of what we are facing. And hopefully help you to uh, steel your, your heart against uh, you know, the, the calls for further shutdowns and, and further lockdowns of our economy. Because we have some very serious economic waters uh, ahead of us, and uh, I'm telling you, if if your if your house is not in order, or at least if you're not trying to get your house in order, it's going to be a really rough ride. The evictions are starting, and you know it's it's going to get rough 
for all of us. I don't think any of us are going to escape the pain. Many people are feeling it right now. This is a good time to to know who you are, to know what you stand for, and wherever possible, get your house in order. Be willing to help the people around you. Do what you can to build one another up. Um, I don't think anybody's going to lone wolf McQuaid their way through this one uh, unscathed. Now, this brings me to a commentary from Jeff Tucker. And this kind of goes hand in, in fist with the... Uh, with the idea that uh, the the lockdown has delivered a government uh, uh, sponsored depression, your government ordered depression. Jeff Tucker talks about how this is one of those rare uh, crises, well, pandemics to be more specific, where people in authority, both elected and unelected, have vigorously maintained we can control this through central planning. This is what the lockdowns were all about. This is what all the various phases of opening and reopening and, you know, the, the mandates for masks and now goggles and who knows what the next thing is going to be. You know, all eyes that turn to Dr. Fauci. This is evidence of central planning. We can control this virus through central planning. And Jeff Tucker says, hey, sorry to burst your bubble, but the virus doesn't care about your policies. Here's what he has to say. He says, based on the data, there seems to be no relationship between lockdowns and lives saved. Did you hear that? Lockdowns do not equal lives saved. And he says that's remarkable, given that we know for sure that lockdowns have destroyed economies the world over. Every epidemic model being flung around in March built in the assumption that lockdowns would control the virus. Now, in the early days, that was about preserving hospital capacity. Later, it became a general principle. We're just trying to slow the spread. But the methods were the same in nearly every country. Ban large gatherings, close schools, shutter businesses, enforce stay-at-home orders, mandate human separation, masks, travel restrictions. Jeff Tucker says nothing like this has been tried in the whole history of humanity, and certainly not on this scale. You might suppose, then, that there was absolute certainty that there would be a causal relationship between lockdowns and the trajectory of the virus. Just as the FDA doesn't approve a drug unless it's proven to be safe and effective, one might suppose the same would be true for a policy that shattered every routine and trampled human rights in the name of disease mitigation. Surely. But he says it turns out that's not the case. It was pure speculation that lockdowns would suppress this virus, and that speculation was based on a hubristic presumption of the awesome power and intelligence of government managers. So for five months, governments all over the world have been freaking out, ordering people around to do this and do that and passing mandate after mandate. Yet there is no evidence that any of it matters to the virus. Already in mid-April, questions arose. Professor Isaac Ben-Israel, head of the Security Studies Program at Tel Aviv University and chairman of the National Council for Research and Development, looked at the data around the world and concluded the virus comes and goes after 70 days regardless of the policies deployed. He found no relationship at all between locking down and transmission and death. Fast forward to mid-July. Data scientists investigated the experience from spring, and they too found no relationship between the virus and policy. Putting it very bluntly, rapid border closures, full lockdowns, and widespread testing were not associated with COVID-19 mortality per million people. That is awesome to consider. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Thank you for reveling in wrong think with me today. I'm sharing an article here from Jeffrey A. Tucker from the Institute, to make that the American Institute for Economic Research. And the virus doesn't care about your policies. This is such a powerful commentary to me in that it really makes a good case why the central planners at every level, both local, state, and and uh, even up to the federal and, and even global level, have proven uh, ineffective at controlling the coronavirus. It's, it's almost like the virus doesn't care what policies they pass, like it's a natural organism that will run its course regardless of what people in power, the King Canutes, you know, think they can do. By the way, if you're not familiar with the story of King Canute, actually, he was, he was a good guy. King Canute got tired of his uh, followers, you know, assuming that, uh, oh, King, you are so powerful. You are so great. You know, there is nothing that is beyond you. I mean, they were bowing and scraping and kissing his feet and just really convinced he was the bee's knees. So to prove a point to them, King Canute had his followers carry his throne down to the edge of the seashore. And they placed his throne in the sand there. And then he very dramatically ordered the tide not to come in. And his followers sat there and watched how over the course of the next couple of hours, the tide came in and eventually they had to wade in and rescue the king. But his point was proven. He may be the king, but there are some things which are beyond his authority and beyond his ability to control. If only some of the people either in elected office or in bureaucratic positions of authority could recognize that that same bit of humility. Nonetheless, back to Tucker's commentary. He gives two Great examples of experts who have come out and said they found no relationship between locking down and slowing the transmission or death caused by coronavirus. One was Professor Isaac Ben Israel, head of the Security Studies Program at Tel Aviv University, chairman of the National Council for Research and Development, and then uh, data scientists investigating the experience of this past spring with the lockdown and concluding there was no relationship between virus and policy. They said rapid border closures, full lockdowns, widespread testing were not associated with COVID-19 mortality per million people. To which Jeff Tucker says that's awesome to consider. Billions of lives fundamentally altered, economies wrecked, centuries-old traditions of liberty and law thrown out, police states everywhere, and to what end? The data indicate that it was all for naught. Apparently, you cannot control a virus with state policies. The virus just doesn't seem to care. He says the only helpful tool you can use to observe this comes from our world in data, which offers a stringency index of government policies based on data from Oxford University. And this is a brilliant chart, which I would encourage you. Go to the show notes. You'll find them at the com. Click on this story. From Jeff Tucker, the virus doesn't care about your policies and see it for yourself. Based on the countries in the world with the highest C-19 mortality rates, this is the index, you have San Marino, Belgium, UK, Spain, Peru, Chile, Italy, USA, France, Brazil, Netherlands, and Mexico. Most of these governments were very quick to impose a lockdown at about the same time, followed by gradual and scattered efforts to liberalize. The one outlier here is Sweden, of course. Now, all of them had high mortality rates, some higher and some lower than Sweden. And Jeff Tucker says counterfactuals are impossible, of course, but already this chart raises questions about whether and to what extent policies had anything at all to do with preventing deaths. 
Another way to look at this, he says, is to compare the top six countries with the highest mortality per millions with the six significant countries with the lowest mortality per million. Those low mortality countries are Uganda, Burundi, Mozambique, Tanzania, Rwanda, and Sri Lanka. All these countries locked down. But he says, notice the absence of a relationship between death and locking down versus staying open. Now, he says, consider 12 countries with very similar deaths per million, 50 plus or minus 10. You can observe a huge range of policies and no apparent relationship between those policies and outcomes in terms of death. And then he has a global chart of deaths per million compared with lockdown severity. He says you can look at it all day, but it shows absolutely nothing meaningful in terms of policy. Plotting only European countries yields a slightly strange result, a pattern, but the opposite of what we're supposed to see. Todd Kenyon used the Oxford data to produce the following alarming chart showing the tighter the lockdown, the higher the deaths per million. Now, there might be many other explanations for this, but here again, he says we see nothing suggesting that the lockdowns improved outcomes. And there's a linked article, Did Lockdown Work? An Economist's Cross-Country Comparison. Christian Bjornskov finds no clear association between lockdown policies and mortality development while offering the, the following chart. And Jeff Tucker says you can do the comparison within the United States thanks to this excellent study by five economists, but the results are the same. Whether you lock down or stay open shows no predictable pattern in deaths. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is if lockdown saved lives, that curve should slant downward to the right, but it doesn't slant at all. It's seemingly random. Once again, it's as if the virus doesn't care. Now, he says, you can take apart this data on the grounds of, well, it's too aggregated or there are too many variables based on demographics. Average age of death the world over is 82 with comorbidities, nearly half in nursing homes and so on. But Jeff Tucker says at some point we're going to have to throw in the towel. Whether a country locks down or stays open has as much predictive power over deaths per million as whether it rains today is related to the color of my socks or whether hurricanes are controlled by literacy rates. In other words, the claim that lockdowns control viruses is pseudoscience or magical thinking of a deeply dangerous sort in that it wrecks economies and lives. Now, to be sure, there are plenty of studies claiming lockdowns saved lives, but the high-profile ones are model-based extrapolations that presume the existence of a relationship that the facts don't seem to back up. Jeff Tucker says if there's a broad-based research study using real data that demonstrates something life-saving about destroying rights and liberties in the name of virus control, he says, I've yet to see it. Now, he does have, to be fair, a disagreeing reader sent him a paper, which he says you're free to read and consider. Meanwhile, we are overwhelmed with evidence that it was all pointlessly destructive. Liberty means the practice of health and wealth. Lockdowns lead to exactly what D.A. Henderson predicted, which is catastrophe. Pretty crazy stuff. All right. One final note here. I'm going to shift gears and we're going to talk for a moment about some of the violence that has been going on. Uh, and isn't it interesting, the standard that uh, that has been adopted by many politicians as well as many within the media. Uh, vandalism is violence. Destructive riots are not just property damage. An excellent article from Brad Palumbo. This was published by the Foundation for Economic Education last week. And he talks about, you know, chaos is consuming Portland, Oregon. Local police declared a riot uh, Saturday evening after rioters once again tried to burn down a federal courthouse, launching mortars and fireworks at police officers, some of whom sustained injury. But Portland is not the only city gripped by violence and unrest. 
It's happened elsewhere, and he documents this. Austin, Texas, Seattle, Washington, and uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, to Dallas, Texas. There's just been a wave of rioting that has broken out in cities. And the interesting part is we've witnessed a breakdown in the rule of law. And Brad Palumbo says in many cases, city officials have either enabled or even encouraged rioting, while law enforcement stands down and allows wanton property destruction. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler even joined rioters and participated in the same demonstrations that were spiraling out of control. Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin encouraged and lauded the self-described anarchists who declared their autonomous zone in the middle of the city. The mayor called that no-go zone a block party amid a summer of love, despite rampant destruction and seizure of property. And the question that Brad Palumbo asks is, so how can anyone justify this madness? We're talking about instances where law enforcement stood down and watched as private property was destroyed and cities rocked by rioters. And the surprising answer is there are people trying to justify it. He says many left-wing journalists, activists, and commentators who are politically sympathetic to the rioters have argued that rampant destruction isn't really a problem because it's just destruction of property, not violence against people. One person making that argument is Oakland-based racial justice organizer Kat Brooks, who was interviewed by the New York Times. Brooks said, I don't consider property destruction violence. Violence is when you attack a person or another living, breathing creature on this planet. Windows don't cry and they can't die. Another writer from uh, the New York Times, Hannah Nicole Jones, founder of the 1619 Project, said violence is when an agent of the state kneels on a man's neck until all the life is leached out of his body. Destroying property, which can be replaced, is not violence. To use the, two, to use the same language to describe these two things is not moral. But Brad Palumbo says, in reality, destruction of property does real harm to innocent people. And if it's allowed to continue, the collapse of the rule of law that started with property destruction begets a cycle of lawlessness that will inevitably descend into bloodshed. It's a great commentary. I encourage you to read it. It will be linked in the show notes, which you can access at thebrianhydeshow.com. Brad Palumbo says this is an ominous path. The track record of Marxism is a litany of tyranny, famine, and murder, precisely because of its hostility toward private property. Property rights are human rights, and he says we discard them at our own peril. Thanks again for joining us today. Hour 2 is coming up next. This is The Brian Hyde Show.